Thanks for that reading, Eric. Um, let me add my welcome to Mark's. If you're new or visiting, my name's Rod. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm going to be speaking on this passage this night, uh, tonight from Colossians 3. Uh, but before we do that, as we've been hearing some family news, we, we rejoice with those who rejoice. We also um, mourn with those who mourn. And so I do need to share the sad news that um, for the Page family and the Tarasenko family, um, their grandfather, uh, Wassel, passed away on Thursday and there will be a Thanksgiving service here on Friday morning at 11 a.m. So if you know the Page family well or the extended family, they, I'm sure they would invite you to come along and to celebrate his life and give thanks for the strong faith he had in the Lord Jesus. And so it will be a celebration even though it's a, a time of mourning also for the family. So that's 11 a.m. this coming Friday morning. But let me pray for us now as we come uh, to this passage and uh, ask that God will help us as we think uh, about this important um, second part of the letter as it kicks off. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can gather here tonight. Uh, we thank you for the freedom to do so. We thank you for your word to us. And we know that it is useful for correcting and training, rebuking. And Lord, we pray that you might uh, work in us tonight, that your spirit might uh, continue to convict and challenge us if we've placed our trust in Jesus that we may uh, live in the light of your word. So help us tonight, we pray. Um, encourage us and challenge us afresh, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, humanity has always been concerned about the development of children or adolescents. We want to see them grow up strongly, physically speaking, but also emotionally. We want both things to happen. And so um, in pediatric medicine, um, there'll be great concern if in the first two years of a child's life they're not um, getting the right weight markers being met and so it'll be talked about as failure to thrive and they'll be concerned that the child is smaller on the typical scale of their peers and um, parents who face that are often concerned about their child being a picky eater or not uh, making the markers with their peers at that time. But then as um, children get older, and usually that's only within the first two years of their life, I think as they get older and particularly as they get into their teenage years, we're wanting them to develop emotionally and prepare for adulthood. And so we want people to grow up emotionally as well. And um, in recent years, psychologists um, around the world have started talking about the Peter Pan syndrome, which is growing apparently in Western countries where um, there are people in an adult body, if you like, but with a childlike emotional mind. And it's an increasingly large number of adults that really want to sort of hang back in their adolescence and glorify that time where they are without responsibility, where there are no commitments or promises that have to be upheld and... It can affect both sexes, but um, particularly young males, it's argued. Um, maybe no surprise to any of you. And um, I guess some of the things that come through with that is you know, just that phobia about um, taking on responsibilities that adults would, continuing to be escapist, as it were, in looking for leisure time, not taking on uh, the roles and responsibilities that come with adulthood. And so we're worried when that happens because the person has failed to grow up. But I wonder if there's a spiritual equivalent to failing to thrive or failing to grow up. You can think about those things physically or emotionally, but what about spiritually? You know, over these first two chapters of Colossians, we've seen 
how we have everything we need in Christ. We have fullness in Christ. That there is no spiritual blessing that we have not received if we've placed our trust in him. And so we have everything to lead a life of response in service of him. But we've been called already in the first two chapters to grow to maturity in Christ, maturity in our faith. So how are we to do that? What does that look like? Well, this is where Paul turns tonight. After spending the first two chapters correcting some wrong doctrines and people wanting to add things to Jesus, he now gets on to, well, having trusted in Christ and Christ alone, what does it look like to grow in him? And so our big question tonight is, how are we to grow in living for Christ? And Christians are usually keen to grow. If you're somebody here tonight that's placed your faith in Christ, then you'll want to know. That hopefully that's a question that's always on your mind. How can I grow in living for Christ? And I think Paul gives us four really helpful answers to that question, which we'll work through tonight. And the first answer is this. By looking to the future. By looking to the future. So notice how Paul commences again, verses 1 to 4 of chapter 3. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Well, we're going to focus on how we might live for Christ and grow in that. Notice that the first thing that we've told that we've got to grasp in living for Jesus is that we need to look to the future, look heavenward. It seems, I think, counterintuitive to us initially. I think if I'm going to be good at living now in life on earth, then how does looking forward to this seeming distant reality in heaven help me in the present? But look how Paul unfolds his argument here. Notice in verse 1 that it's because we've been raised with Christ that we now focus on heavenly realities where Jesus rules at the right hand of the Father. And so our minds are no longer fixated on earthly things, but rather we're pursuing Christ's agenda rather than our own earthly kingdoms, if you like. And this is because, verse 3, Paul says, our, we died to our old life, that old life of just selfishly pursuing whatever we wanted, our plans, our earthly kingdom, if you like, We've, we've left that behind now to follow our Saviour. And so having placed our trust in him, we've got to work out that new inner life. Uh, that reality of being united with Jesus needs to flow out in the way we live our lives day by day. And notice Paul says in verse 3 that in the present, that um, union with Christ, that future reality that is a sure hope for us is concealed concealed for those around us but there's one day coming verse 4 where that'll be revealed for all because Jesus will return in his glory and he will take those with him who are going to be glorified with him and that certainty of the eternal life that's promised to believers will then be a reality seen by all to put it in simple terms as we summarize these first four verses Christians are part of Christ's kingdom by faith which is not of this world and so, although we live here, um, obviously on this earth, in the flesh, physically, but spiritually we're already citizens in heaven. We're already there by faith. And so, spiritual growth requires that we maintain a proper perspective on the world. 
So throughout the New Testament, the writers will talk about us being strangers and exiles in the world, that we're not to put down roots here, we're not to live as if this is the only reality. We're looking forward to something far greater. And so therefore, we're in the world, but we're not of the world. And to be preoccupied with heaven, then we'll be focused with the one who reigns in heaven. We'll be concerned about his plans and his purposes and his provision for our life. Not our small puny plans that so often take up so much of our time. Now that's very different to the world around us. You know, if a person is not a believer in the Lord Jesus, then this earth is all that they're looking forward to. And so they're seeking heaven on earth. They're seeking to make their life extended here, to be better here, because it's all about the 70 or 80 years that God might grant us. And so it becomes about seeking new technology, extending, improving our health, trying to find heaven on earth, if you like. I don't know if you've heard of this guy, but Ray Kurzweil uh, is an American inventor. He's a futurist. He's also the director of engineering for Google in the United States. He's written a lot of books on artificial intelligence and transhumanism. And he likes to uh, pontificate about what's going to happen in the decades to come. He's predicting how technologies will develop. And at the moment, he's thinking a lot about uh, nanobots and brain-to-computer interfaces like Elon Musk's Neuralink and how these things will affect our bodies, what life will be like if these technologies develop. And his thinking is that the process could start towards a time in the future when our brains and our entire beings can become somewhat mechanised. And he thinks that will begin with great leaps in virtual reality technology. Um, he's arguing that VR tech is going to take off in the years to come so that there won't be a commute to work anymore because you won't be travelling to work. Your commute will just be putting on your headset and you'll be present at work. And so that will mean that people won't need to be in the mega cities with everyone being at this central location. You can work from home. Um, that will mean there'll be de-urbanisation. People will be able to shift out from cities. They will be able to be located wherever they like. And that will change our whole work life. But more than that, he wants to argue that this uh, growing technology will have an ability to replace our biology with what he would call more substantial hardware. And so he predicts that by the early 2030s, we'll be able to copy a human conscience, uh, consciousness onto an electronic device. In which case, he argues that at some point, flesh and bones and blood, well, they won't be needed. We can just have a scan of your brain onto a machine. And the implication is that humanity, or at least your brain, could live forever. We're going to go on and on. Well... I don't know what you think of Ray's brave, future, <laughs> brave vision of the future. Um, but there's something about this kind of thinking that is quite unnerving because there's a longing here, isn't there, for the eternal. There's a longing for something beyond 70 or 80 years. There's a desire for something more. And yet God is left out of the picture. In fact, what we have is humanity being its own saviour that we'll just get smarter, we'll work out technology and we'll be able to extend our life, we'll be able to solve our problems because we have the answers. And so eternal life will be, if you want to call it that, will be your conscience or your brain on an electronic device. Well, 
God instructs believers to have their focus on the reality that is heaven so that we will put this life into perspective. It'll help us grow in Christ in the present because we will start seeing people as God sees them, seeing them in desperate need of salvation that they might be brought in relationship with him, that they might have that future hope that you have if you've placed your trust in Christ. And that will mean that we'll start seeking his kingdom first. As Matthew 6 talks about, seek Christ's kingdom first and then all these other things will be added to you. Our focus shouldn't be on our puny plans, but rather on Christ's kingdom. And that will change how we live now in the present. Well, there's the first answer. Second answer to our question of how to grow in living for Christ is this. By putting off our old self. Not only do we need to look to the future, but we need to put off our old self. Notice again what Paul goes on to say in verses 5 to 9. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices. Well, here we see what looking to our future in heaven will mean in our living in the present. It means we've got work to do here in the present in terms of putting old off the old sinful nature. We've died to our old life since penalty has been dealt with through Christ's death and resurrection. And the result is that we're now to grow in holiness or Christian maturity. But there's no way that we're going to be able to grow in those ways if sin just runs unchecked in our lives. If there's no dealing with that old sinful nature that continues to fight despite the gift of the Spirit as we've come to faith in the Lord Jesus. And so Paul wants to offer us two sample lists of sins to remove, doesn't he, in this section. Uh, first list in verse 5 is comprised, if you like, of sins of perverted love and greed. And the second list is all about anger and also wrong speech. Well, let's take a reality check and think about Australian society for a moment. Do this exercise with me. How do you think our society goes in relation to this list that Paul's offered? I guess I'd want to argue that the idolatry of greed is a huge problem in our society today, just as it was in Paul's day. I mean, materialism is promoted constantly in Australia. It's basically our national religion. But then we bemoan all the time the fact that it doesn't bring satisfaction. I don't know if you heard in the news the last couple of weeks, Australia's been rated the wealthiest nation in the world. They've done a new assessment based on median incomes. And Australia comes out top. And so everyone should have a smile on their face. They should be walking around the streets just laughing that we live in the greatest place on earth. But I don't see that. I don't know about you. We see people moping around, worrying about the interest rate. They haven't got this. They haven't got that. It's just not enough. These things that I'm enjoying today in this level of affluence that we have in this country, well, it's just not satisfying. What about violence or impurity? Well, it seems to just fill the TV and movie screens. All our storylines about somebody killing somebody or being sexually immoral. And then we wonder why there is so much domestic violence in our homes. 
We wonder why there is so much promiscuity in our society. We wonder why there's so much unfaithfulness in marriages. See, we have a deep, deep deep-seated problem. And of course, it's not a new problem. It's not Australia's problem alone. It's a worldwide problem. This is the default pattern of humanity. Paul's wanting to say, but no, those who have come to Christ now have a new master, and so they're to live differently. They're to think differently. They're to act differently. We're not to live like that anymore. We're to put these things off. And this ongoing task of growing in godliness, well, it's hard work, actually. But sometimes Christians want to sort of pass it off as a nothing or even invent theology at times to say, hey, we really don't have to work at this. I don't have to be too intentional about my godliness. You know, we have phrases like let go and let God. Just, you know, he will do it. It's like osmosis. Just go to sleep and somehow it'll happen overnight and you'll wake up a more godly person in the morning as if we don't have to fight tooth and nail for each centimetre of growth, as it were. But look at the passage in verses 5 to 9. Look what Paul's got to say here, because that passive approach to growing in godliness is not what we see. Paul's got actions for us to take. Notice verse 5, put to death. Verse 8, rid yourselves. Verse 9, take off. Christians have new life, past tense. We've been given it. But that doesn't mean that we sit back and allow sin in our life. We're still to strive for godliness. That's a daily choice. And it's one in which we're often battling. I don't know if you remember uh, the famous comedy film, uh, Groundhog Day, came out in 1993, uh, starring Bill Murray. Uh, He was, of course, the weatherman uh, who had to travel to this small town Uh, during his assignment of covering the annual Groundhog Day to see whether there'd be spring would come or there'd be more winter. And, of course, he gets caught up in this time loop and he keeps living the same day again. You know, he wakes up every morning at 6 a.m. and there's Sonny and Cher singing, I've got you, babe, yet again. It's enough to drive a man to despair. And it does the first few days. He's not coping with it at all. He, He thinks, well, my life is not worth living now, I'm just repeating, I can do anything I like. And so he just goes out and sins, he goes and robs the bank, he works out how everything works in town and he can just wander through and do anything he wants. But it leads him nowhere, he's just despairing of life altogether and then he decides, well look, I'm going to try and make myself a better person. I'm going to try and show some kindness and compassion, I'm going to try and put off these old sins, I'll just try hard and I'll be a really good person. He starts learning skills, so he learns to speak French and he learns to play the piano and he gets good at ice sculpture. But none of those things is he really doing to serve others, but just to impress the woman who's on his team that's covering this event so that he can suddenly come out with all these new skills and she'll be impressed with him. He finds it very hard actually to grow in godliness, that he's still the selfish person he was. He can't change things, he can't stop the people that are going to die that day that he knows after seeing the day over and over. You see, it's actually very hard to fix ourselves. The problem is we can't take off our old self in our own strength. We need God's help to do that. Yes, we're called in this passage to work with God, but we need his work of renewal in us. And that brings us to our third answer to our question. How are we to grow in living for Christ? Not only are we to look to the future, to put off our old self, but we're to put on our new self in Christ, to put on our new 
self. Have a look again where Paul goes from verse 10 to 14. And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. And here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. You notice here in the opening verses, here is the work of renewal. And we learn that it's renewal through knowledge. It's a renewal of our minds as we learn more about God, our Savior. It can't be just our work. We need God's help. So notice in verse 10 how he speaks that way. And this knowledge of God can only be learned through his revelation to us. So it comes down to studying what God has revealed to himself, revealed of himself to us in the Bible. We need to come to God's word more that we might know how to live as he would have us, how to put on these new virtues or characteristics which were perfectly lived out by our Saviour, the Lord Jesus. And we might say from elsewhere in Scripture, although Paul doesn't mention it here, that we also need the help of God through his Holy Spirit. If this word is going to be anything but dead letters on a page, we need God's Spirit to be at work in us so that we're convicted, that we really want to live in this new way, that we want to respond to what God is showing us in his word. And so we need his help if we're to put on this new self that we're called to. And notice that it's about being conformed to the image of our creator in verse 10. As we do this and we understand more of God's word and we seek to obey it, then we'll be conformed more and more to the likeness of our saviour, the Lord Jesus. And notice that this renewal is, is not something that's simply personal. Yes, we are to grow through that process, but it's going to have a big effect on those around us. Indeed, the church, God's people gathered. And so notice in verse 11, it has implications that this gospel and this change, this transformation that's taking place will break down all the racial barriers between different people. And so there's no longer Jew or Gentile. There's no longer slave or free. There's no longer even barbarian or Scythian. They were the worst of the worst. They were seen as the bloodthirsty ones that we might use the word Philistine today as those that were uncultured. And Paul says it doesn't matter what background the person comes from. You're all one in Christ. The playing field is leveled. And this new corporate impact of the gospel and transformation that God will bring in us. And this renewal will help us to put on the spiritual virtues that are listed in verses 12 to 14. Such outward actions and attitudes um, are an indication of this inward transformation. You notice that we've already been brought into God's family. Uh, the start of verse 12, he's really talking about justification before he goes back onto this big theme of sanctification through this passage. So he says, firstly, you've been chosen. You're holy and dearly loved. He uses the language that he uses in the Old Testament of his chosen people, Israel, and applies it to the New Covenant people, the Christians who have trusted in Christ. And so having been chosen and holy and dearly loved, being set aside by God as his people, then we're to be putting off our old attitudes and actions, to be clothed with these new virtues as we imitate our Saviour, the Lord Jesus. Clothe ourselves with compassion and kindness and humility 
and then show patience and love in verses 13 and 14. It's a great metaphor, isn't it? This uh, one of changing clothes, taking off one set and putting on another. I don't know if you saw the 2008 uh, rom-com uh, 27 Dresses. It was panned by the critics, but um, I did see it, and um, it was one of those movies that sticks in your mind, maybe because of how bad it was, but it's all about this... Um, um, Catherine Heigl plays this lady, Jane Nichols, who um, is the bridesmaid at 27 weddings. And so she keeps all the dresses from all these bridesmaid uh, roles that she's had. She was the wedding planner often, so she's always caring and taking after everyone else, looking after their weddings, but never is she the bride. And it's becoming really frustrating for her, and it all comes to a climax when her sister comes back from overseas in Europe to the US and suddenly falls in love with her boss that um, her sister had secretly been in love with. And now she is there planning her sister's wedding with the one that she would rather be marrying. But there's this sense all the way through it that she wants to put off these bridesmaid clothes and be the one wearing the white dress. And you know, the church is the bride of Christ. And the argument that's running through this passage is that if we are in Jesus, if we are preparing to be his bride in heaven and going to the wedding feast in heaven, then we need to be wearing the right clothes to be the bride. We're to put off the old clothes and be clothed with these new virtues that imitate our Saviour. We've got to be the people who actually display these characteristics with God's help, with his spirit working in us, his word convicting us. And all of these uh, virtues that are spoken about in verses 12 to 14 are all wrapped together in verse 14, we're told, by love. Love, if you like, is the belt that holds this outfit together. And it's not surprising, is it? It's the first fruit of the Spirit that's listed in Galatians 5.22. It's what Jesus and Paul will say is the summary of all of the law in the Old Testament, is to love God and to love others. And so love is the essential piece of clothing which needs to be in place for any of these other virtues to be anything but just going through the motions. You see, you can try to be compassionate or be kind or patient, but if you have no love for the people, a God-given love that you want to express those virtues to, then it just becomes an empty charade. See, God's great agenda for our life is that we would grow in godliness, that we would grow in these virtues as we put on this new clothes, as we grow in our understanding of his work through Christ. And he wants us to be people that are actually obedient to our Saviour, that are truly living for him, that are really thirsty for righteousness, that just long to be godly, to be holy, as our God is holy. Which brings us to our final answer to the question. How are we to grow in living for Christ? We're not only to look to the future, we're not only to put off our old self and to put on our new self, but we're to spur each other on. We've got a collective responsibility. We need to spur each other on if we're to grow in living for Christ. Have a look at how Paul closes out this section in verses 15 to 17. Paul writes, Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as members... Of one body, you are called to peace and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. Sing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father 
through him. There's a beautiful finish here, and the focus is now corporate. Notice in verse 15, Paul talks about the peace of Christ. And there's two elements to this here. The peace of Christ is one, something that has been won for us. Uh, God the Father is a holy God that cannot look upon our sin, and so we are enemies with him because of sin in our natural state, and yet Christ comes along and pays our debt before him, makes peace between us and God. But then that has an effect on us too. We have a sense, if you like, a subjective sense of peace as we now have that sense of security and peace with God, but also peace with other people, with other believers. And that word rule refers to an umpire in the original Greek here. So in Paul's context, it was somebody who actually decided athletics competitions in the ancient Greek world. So, you know, they're running the 100 metres and it's a dead heat. Who's going to decide who was the first to cross the finish? The umpire steps in. And so the idea here is that we're to consider that being united with Jesus by faith, resting security, securely in him, should rule over our life, all the decisions we make, all our daily choices. We now have a different outlook and we see that as we come together as well and spur one another on. We maintain, Paul says, as a result, the unity with other believers as this peace rules in our hearts. And this is going to be a great encouragement to those around us. I don't know, maybe you can think of someone here or somebody you know that is really at peace uh, in their life with God and with others because of their understanding of all that Christ has done for them. It just permeates who they are and their response and their sense of unity with others. And it will overflow also, if you know such a person, in gratitude, in thankfulness to God. Notice how Paul talks about that at the end of verse 15 as well. Such a peaceful heart that seeks unity will also lead to thankfulness. It will come naturally as that person reflects on their peace with God because their debt before him has been fully paid. But secondly, notice in verse 16 that not only should the church be united in peace and gratitude, but we should actually be spurring one another on in our common faith. Notice how Paul talks about the message of Christ here, and that's just referring to the scriptures, that we are to know them well, to dwell on them richly, and then to be able to teach and admonish one another with them. So it's not just as we hear a talk on a Sunday or even as we share around God's word at home group during the week, but it's in all our conversations after church tonight, as we meet up one for one for coffee, whatever it might be, we should always be thinking how we can encourage and spur the other person on in their faith in the Lord Jesus. It's something we've actually got to be intentional about so that our you know, conversations don't just revert to the weather or the latest sports result or whatever it might be. It becomes the surface level conversation and we never get down to actually spiritually encouraging and challenging people. And I think at times we don't want to be admonished by others but let me say to you, if you've got somebody who's close enough in relationship to you and loves you enough that they're going to speak into your life and challenge you about things based on God's word, that they're going to admonish you on how to pursue Christ more, then thank God for that input in your life. Welcome it. Don't push it away. We need to be a community who has that sense of looking out for one another, of spurring one another on. And so often, I think, in our individualistic society, we tend to revert back to, well, it's just about my journey. It's about my growth in relationship with God. It's all about how much I read the Bible or pray, and really everybody else is unimportant. 
No, you've been saved into a community of believers. It's not just about the individual with God, but a collective as we grow together. And so we take responsibility for one another. So I guess I want to ask you the question as you think about this next week. How are you going to spur those in your life on in their faith? It's something you need to be intentional about. Don't just think, oh, we might catch up this week and if I just happen to think of something or God puts something in my mind, then maybe I'll say some Christian comment in the midst of our catching up. Now, Paul's got something far more intentional in mind in this passage. He wants to see us teaching and admonishing, not only with our words, but as we gather together, he speaks about that happening, even as we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, that we're constantly learning and shaping and correcting our thinking about Christ that we might pursue serving him more. Well, let me encourage you to think about that with whatever's on your uh, timeline or diary this week. And finally, in verse 17, Paul concludes the section by this um, basic rule of thumb, if you like, in terms of living for Jesus, and that is to do everything in his name. You notice how he concludes there? Do everything in the name of Jesus. That is to act consistently with what he has taught and who he is as we interact, as we serve. And again, this is not something that's done reluctantly or out of duty. Oh, well, I guess I've got to you know, serve Jesus in this way. I've got to do things in his name as if we'd really rather pursue our own kingdom or our own agenda. Now, notice that, again, Paul is just bursting with gratitude and thankfulness that he can do these things. There's this beautiful theme running through verses 15 to 17 at the end here where Paul keeps raising each verse. Thankfulness, gratitude to God being so aware of everything we've been blessed with. I think as we think about that theme, as we conclude, we can think, well, how does that help me grow in living for Christ? If I'm just thankful about things, does that actually spur me on in further service and devotion to the Lord Jesus? Absolutely. Let me share with you a quote from the American pastor and author John Piper. He says this, Gratitude is such a great and wonderful thing in Scripture. There are ways that gratitude helps bring about obedience to Christ. One way is that the spirit of gratitude is so incompatible with some sinful attitudes. I think this is why Paul wrote, he said, There must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting, but rather thanksgiving. Gratitude is a humble response to the good will of someone who has done you a favor. And this humility and happiness cannot coexist in the heart with mean, selfish attitudes. Therefore, the cultivation of a thankful heart will lead you to live for Christ. I think that's so true. And yet we live in a culture where there's not a lot of thankfulness, even though we're blessed with so much. Sometimes the joy is missing as we worry about the one thing that is not right when God has granted us so many things. Look, we began tonight by asking the question, how can we grow in living for Jesus? And we've found that the answer is fourfold in this passage. Firstly, we need to look to the future. That is, we need to have a heavenly perspective. And that'll shape how we live now. We won't be caught up in the forest of our own life, or the trees of our own life. We'll be able to step back and look at the forest from God's perspective and see people in their eternal need of salvation before him. We need to also put off our old self. We need to get rid of certain behaviours and patterns of sinful thoughts and actions that used to dominate our life. We need to put on these new 
self, these new virtues through the work of God in us, his spirit and his word, shaping us and transforming from the inside out. And finally, we need to spur one another on. We need to see that we have a responsibility, not simply for ourselves before God, but for all those around us. That the person sitting next to you tonight is dependent on you just as much as they're dependent on their own devotion to the Lord Jesus to keep growing. Well, let me challenge us to do that, to keep working at that, especially in this Christmas season where it will get busy, where there'll be opportunities to meet people more often over different occasions, that we not be concerned totally with how much food might be consumed at the meeting, but how we might spur people to think about our Saviour whose birth we're celebrating. Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for all that you grant us in Christ, for every spiritual blessing in him. We acknowledge that we need to continue to grow in him. We need to become more like our saviour. We need to apply ourselves in terms of our devotion day by day. Help us to be those who uh, love you more and more and so express that in our godliness, in our desire to grow in godliness, in our desire to encourage those around us to continue to to be spurred on to live for our Saviour. We ask it in his name. Amen.